Well, I define globalization as the process of the world becoming more interconnected economically, socially, politically, legally. And also there's a moral dimension too, which is an increasing awareness that all human beings are part of one global human family. Right here in Nebraska, we see examples every day of companies who are not only doing business locally, but doing business internationally. It means people and cultures are essentially transparent, moving all over the world at a very, very brisk pace. You can't focus on one issue without understanding the overall picture that uh, you know, we're just integrating on a global basis. Uh, we have to somewhere along the way learn to deal with more different people and understand all of these consequences that, that, uh, that occur uh, because of things that we often look at as totally unrelated, but they're not. They're, they're very intimately connected. You know, as a Nebraskan, you are affected every day by environmental policy. The, the food you eat, the water you drink, the air you breathe, uh, all are influenced by environmental policies. And uh, we are all in this together. We need good policies to make sure that those resources are there for future generations. We have a much greater understanding now of how our actions are linked to everything across the planet. And any time a group of people want to want to work together, interact together, have to live together, whether it's a baseball team or a family or the population of a country, you have to agree on what the what the rules are going to be and what, agree on all of this. And um, environmental policy is the best way that we have to do this. I think the best environmental policies take the long view. Uh, environmental issues tend to be complicated, they tend to be, uh, take, require a long time to solve, and we're not going to solve them well with policies that look out a year or a couple years or an election cycle. We need policies that look out and say, what, what environment do we want for our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren? Good evening. I am Lloyd Ambrosius, Professor of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, it is my joy as uh, Chair of the Program Committee to welcome you uh, to the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. Uh, tonight, as you know, we are joining together with the uh, Nebraska Humanities Council uh, in supporting the Governor's Lecture. Uh, we appreciate as well uh, the support that we have received uh, from the Cooper Foundation, from the Nebraska Humanities uh, Foundation, and from Union Pacific. We also appreciate our partnership with the LEAD Center for the Performing Arts, which uh, provides uh, this wonderful venue for uh, the Governor's Lecture tonight and for the uh, Thompson Forum uh, speakers uh, throughout the year. Uh, in addition to those of you who are here in the LEAD Center, uh, we want to welcome uh, others uh, throughout the state who are joining us by simulcast uh, at six different colleges and universities uh, in Omaha, uh, in uh, Columbus, uh, in Hastings, 
uh, in Kearney, in North Platte, and in uh, Scotts Bluff. Uh, we are uh, delighted uh, that since this is the governor's lecture that the uh, long bipartisan tradition uh, continues tonight so that uh, we will be joined later uh, and he will be introduced later, the uh, governor of the state of, of Nebraska. Uh, let me remind you that uh, on November the 10th, we'll hold the next uh, Ian Thompson uh, Forum. Uh, on that occasion, the Chinese ambassador from Washington and uh, Senator uh, Chuck Hagel will be here uh, holding a dialogue that will deal with some of the issues uh, relating to domestic affairs uh, as it relates to the uh, larger context of globalization's uh, promise. Uh, now let me welcome uh, to the stage uh, Chuck Shoemaker, who will introduce the uh, SOAR Award for this evening. Thank you, Dr. Ambrosius. I am Chuck Shoemaker, Chairman of the Nebraska Humanities Council. Tonight, the Nebraska Humanities Council and the Nebraska Foundation for the Humanities present our highest award for encouraging public understanding and appreciation of the humanities in Nebraska, the SOAR Award in the Humanities. But before we do that, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors tonight, the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues, the University of Nebraska, and Union Pacific. I want you to look at your program to note the generous financial sponsors for tonight's Governor's Lecture in the Humanities and join me in thanking them for helping to support humanities programming all across our state. I also want to acknowledge the extraordinary work of the 2010 Planning Committee in making tonight possible, the staff of the Nebraska Humanities Council and our honorary chairs, all of the current and former governors of our state. Thank you. Please note also the outstanding citizen volunteers from across Nebraska who serve on the boards of directors for the Nebraska Humanities Council and the Nebraska Foundation for the Humanities and our partner, the Nebraska Cultural Endowment. Thank you all for your service to our state and to its people. In 1980, the Nebraska Humanities Council began its tradition of honoring those who encouraged the humanities to flourish in our state with its SOAR Award. The bronze sculpture recognizes individuals, communities, organizations, and businesses for their outstanding contributions to promoting a better understanding of Nebraska, who we are, and where we have been to build a better future. It gives me great pleasure to award the 2010 SOAR Award in the Humanities to Don Peterson. Your program describes Don's exceptional leadership in the educational and civic life of Nebraska, as well as his significant accomplishments in the legal profession and as a state senator in our Nebraska unicameral legislature. In the words of his nominator, Rhonda Seacrest, few, people, few public servants have done as much for the humanities in Nebraska as Don Peterson. 
Don first became involved in the mission of the Nebraska Humanities Council as president of the North Platte Rotary when he worked with other community organizations to bring the Great Plains Chautauqua to North Platte in 1993. Don joined the Nebraska Humanities Council Board of Directors in 2002 and served as chair from 2006 to 2008. As a member of the Nebraska legislature, he had worked with Senator LaVon Crosby to craft the 1998 legislation that established the first state endowment in the nation for both the humanities and the arts, the $5 million Nebraska Cultural Endowment Fund. Later, after Senator Peterson was term limited out of the legislature, he worked with the Nebraska Cultural Endowment and the legislature to respond successfully to the challenge offered in 2007 by Omaha and Dick Holland to add $5 million to the state fund if it were matched dollar for dollar by private grants. You may remember that last year, Mr. Holland was the recipient of the 2009 SOAR Award in the Humanities. The Nebraska Cultural Endowment remains a unique public-private partnership nationally for the arts and the humanities, and Nebraskans can be very proud of what Senator Peterson and our legislature did to make sure that our children and their children and grandchildren will also benefit from the humanities and the arts because of the Nebraska Cultural Endowment. Senator Peterson has been a stalwart advocate for the humanities on the federal level as well, demonstrating the importance of public support for the state humanities councils and the careful stewardship of those funds by their citizen boards. He is an eloquent national voice for the importance of the humanities to all citizens in a democratic society. Don continues to make the public humanities thrive in Nebraska with his service on the board of the directors of the Nebraska Cultural Endowment. Congratulations, Don Peterson, and thank you for your leadership on behalf of the humanities in Nebraska. Thank you. You want to take this? I will do that. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you very much, Chuck. This is a very humbling moment. There, this is the 15th year of the uh, Governor's Lecture Series, so there have been 14 previous Nebraskans who have been awarded the Sowers Award. And uh, as I'm looking at that, I'm, I first wanted to look at that statue. Can I see it again? <laughs> I, I like to see it, but <laughs> what I notice about this statue, and it's really a good replica of what, of what is on top of our Capitol building, I see a barefoot farmer. He's standing on uh, stalks of corn and wheat, and he is sowing what I presume to be crops for the future for the state of Nebraska. I think it's very symbolic uh, of our background. Chuck? There's an old adage that says you are judged by the company you keep. And I've always borne that in mind. And I notice that uh, when we have 15, uh, 14 previous awardees of this, I look back at their background and I thought, boy, these people have really done a lot for our state. They're all outstanding recipients of this. Some are business, but most of them are individual efforts. So if I look back at, at the last few years of the winners of this award, I'd like to share a little bit of my thoughts of, of prior winners. And the first one I think about is NET, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications. And I know all of you are familiar with the beautiful work that they do in presenting things about the history and the culture of our state. It's truly an outstanding organization. I happen to be on the board, the foundation of the NET, and I had the occasion to go to Washington, D.C. and uh, attend one of the meetings of the Corpor Corporation for Public Broadcast. And I can assure you that 
the Nebraska organization, NET, is considered by, one of, by all of those people that I met one of the most outstanding of the organizations. This has been a tough time for dollars for some of these uh, public organizations. And where Nebraska has been shining, they kept reducing their staff and they made, but they never, never produced uh, a lesser quality. They just had to keep the money down. But there are many uh, stations now that have gone dark because they hadn't been managed as well as this one has. So that was one of our winners. Another one I'd like to share with you is, uh, my good friend, Chuck Trimble. Chuck received this award, in fact, I handed it to him uh, several years ago, but he is an outstanding uh, Native American, and I got to know Chuck quite well as he served on the Humanities Board, and as I would just say that he is actually the first uh, Native American that I have had close contact with, and he is just a fine man. But in addition to all the things that he has done otherwise as a national and state spokesman for the Native Americans, he also had time to help compose an opera um, called Wakanda's Dream, which was uh, produced in Omaha uh, several years ago. So he's just an outstanding person. The next one, and I don't know what else I can say, but Ted Couser from Garland, Nebraska, was selected the U.S. Poet Laureate. What are you going to do for an encore with that? But, and then finally, as, as Chuck mentioned, uh, the award winner last year was Richard Holland. And Richard Holland is a philanthropist in Omaha, but he chooses carefully those things that he believes are worthy of his financial support. And uh, he has worked closely with us in, uh, in many ways. I would say that uh, if you look at at Dick Holland, he's probably best known for the performing theater in Omaha called Holland Performing Arts Center. But in addition to that, which you may not know too well, is that he helped spearhead the drive to increase the amount of money in the cultural endowment uh, for another $5 million with the idea that this would be matched with uh, private funds in order to access the money. In other words, the, the grant is there. The money is there, interest is being produced, but we can't get any of that money unless we raise private funds in order to accomplish that. So uh, it's, it's worked out very well. The economy hasn't been kind to any of that kind of an organization, but the interesting thing, uh, thing about the cultural endowment is that all of the money that is received by the cultural endowment goes to support both the Arts Council and the Humanities Council of Nebraska. Uh, anyway, as you look back at these people, you'd say, boy, that's good company to be in, engaged with. And so I'm very proud of that fact that I, that I could be in uh, that company. So let me talk just a moment about uh, the early 90s. I was in North Platte, hopefully minding my own business, and I got a telephone call from Keith Blackledge, and he said, Jane Hood and I would like to take you to lunch. You know the adage about free lunch. Well. It was pretty close to that. Anyway, the, the next, when we started talking, they said, you know, you're the president of the Rotary Club here in North Platte. It's got about 135 members. We'd like you to sponsor Chautauqua this next year. And so I didn't really know a whole lot about Chautauqua, to be honest with you, but I, I gained my knowledge of that, and we did put it on. It was very successful. But I didn't have a whole lot to do with humanities for the next couple of years. And then my first wife, Virginia, became a member of the board of the Humanities Council. 
and she loved that work. She worked very hard at that, and uh, then it was discovered that she had a terminal illness. So she continued to work on, on the humanities until she came to me and she said, Don, I really can't do this. Would you do it for me? And so mainly it was receiving grant requests. The way this works is that communities and entities throughout the state make grant requests to the Humanities Council and asking the Humanities Council to match their funding of some event that in their mind is very important within their community. And I saw some of those things and it, it occurred to me, particularly with the uh, flow of, of personnel from the smaller communities into the larger communities, they need all the help they can get in order to maintain their own integrity, their history, and their culture. And it struck me as a huge responsibility to decide which ones to, uh, to fund. I looked at that sore. That's why I wanted to look at him again. <clears throat> I look, he has a bag there, and he's getting ready to throw seeds out in order to, to have enriched crops for the state of Nebraska. I kind of looked at the Humanities Council effort in grants as somewhat the same thing. It's taking a small amount of money, it's putting it back into the communities where they really need to perpetuate what they believe to be an important part of their, of their heritage and their culture. And I thought we needed to do that in order to preserve uh, this, the integrity of the entire state. So anyway, that was uh, a moving thing for me. And then ultimately, when uh, Virginia could no longer serve because of her health, uh, they appointed me to take her place. And I got involved not just with the grant program, but with the many other programs that the Humanities Council does, and I deemed them all very worthy. So <clears throat> it was my idea that, that we need to do whatever we can to perpetuate the good things in the state of Nebraska. And if we don't do it, who will? Who will help out the small community that doesn't have enough money to put on the, the cultural program of their own community? And I thought, that's a big responsibility. So I decided that that is something that, that I should like to be a part of. I noticed that, uh, that, in fact, I see an awful lot of, I don't say old friends anymore, for obvious reasons. I say longtime friends. I see many longtime friends here tonight. I've enjoyed visiting with them and talking with them. But I also know that there are a great number of former and present members of the Humanities Council and the Humanities Foundation. And I appreciate the effort that you have made for this volunteer service. I just think that is so important. We can't minimize the importance of that in our state. And so we continue to do that. I, uh, I was reminded of a, of a quotation that I'd seen, and it was Albert Schweitzer. And Albert Schweitzer said, you must give some time to your fellow man, even if it's a little thing to do, something for those who have needs of man's help, something for which you get no pay, but the privilege of doing it. For remember, you don't live in a world all your own. Your brothers are here too. And I think that's very meaningful for all of us to hear. I'm very humbled by the receipt of this award, and thank you. <clears throat> And now it is my pleasure to introduce the governor of the great state of Nebraska, the Honorable Dave Heineman.
when you look out over the audience from uh, this viewpoint, it's really awesome. Thank you for being here tonight. Welcome to the 2010 Governor's Lecture in the Humanities. And I want to note that we are only 48 hours away from a Husker victory over the University of Texas. There, there are very important things we have to accomplish this weekend. Also, because we're here at the University of Nebraska tonight, I want to acknowledge the leadership and the efforts of Chancellor Perlman and Tom Osborne to move us to the Big Ten. That is a major and significant move forward for the university. I also want to commend the leadership of President Milliken and Chancellor Perlman regarding Innovation Campus and their overall leadership of the university. I appreciate what all these individuals are doing for the university and our great state. For 15 years, this lecture series has helped inspire discussion on humanities-related topics that impact our civic and public life. I appreciate the work of the Nebraska Humanities Council in bringing humanities programming to our schools and our communities. It is my pleasure tonight to introduce the presenter of the 15th Annual Governor's Lecture in the Humanities, Christine Todd Whitman. This is a milestone for the Governor's Lecture. In the 15-year history, this is the first time the lecture is going to be given by a governor. I am very pleased to welcome a fellow colleague and well-respected expert on energy issues to Nebraska to present this lecture. Christine Todd Whitman served as governor of New Jersey from 1994 through 2000 and had the distinction of being the state's first woman chief executive. As governor, she delivered on a promise to provide cleaner air, water, and land to the citizens of New Jersey during her seven years in office. Under her leadership, the state earned recognition from the Natural Resources Defense Council for developing the nation's most comprehensive beach monitoring system. In the most densely populated state in the country, Governor Whitman preserved a record amount of state land, setting it aside as permanent green space. President George W. Bush nominated her to serve as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency and a member of his cabinet in 2001. During the next two and a half years, she developed a reputation for instituting common sense environmental policy. She championed regulations to reduce sulfur emissions, instituted water protection policies for America's watersheds, and established the first federal program to promote redevelopment and reuse of former contaminated industrial sites known as Brownfields. Today, she is president of the Whitman Strategy Group, a consulting firm specializing in energy and environmental issues. Tonight's governor's lecture is an opportunity to hear from a widely recognized expert on energy and environmental sustainability. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the former EPA administrator and the former governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here, and I'm delighted to be here tonight. And I must say, I'm glad they didn't schedule this lecture for last Thursday night. I suspect I might have been just a little bit lonely up here. Um, you know, you gave Kansas State quite a whooping. 
Oh, it was, uh, I, I can feel the, the excitement about the upcoming Texas game, and I, since I have to be in Dallas next week, I have to be a little careful about saying anything and taking sides, but, you know, go red. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, football is in many ways a metaphor for life. It can also serve as a metaphor for, for government, especially as it was described by the columnist uh, George Will. He said that, and I, I just love the way he said it, he said, football combines two of the worst aspects of American life, violence punctuated by committee meetings. <laughs> I, however, prefer Vince Lombardi's definition of football and what makes for success in football, because what he said it was, it's individuals committed to a group effort. That's what makes it teamwork, a company work, a society work, and a country work. That's not only a good de definition of how to achieve success in football, it's also a good definition of how government should work, coming together in that way. Unfortunately, however, that's not the case as we see our government operating today, especially when it comes to confronting the twin challenges we face of protecting our environment and securing our energy future. Global climate change, our addiction to fossil fuels, the urgent need to develop new, affordable, reliable sources, clean sources of energy, those are enormous problems that call out for action. And they call out for action now. Yet government continues to kick the problem down the road by not assuming that responsibility of making decisions in these areas. Meeting these challenges is not just about accepting responsibilities and responsible stewardship for its own sake or simply about doing the right thing. And it's not just about keeping our economy growing. It's about our national security, our national way of life, and our quality of life. Let's take the issue of global climate change, which is a volatile topic, if ever there was one. People feeling extremely passionate on, on all the si every side of the issue. The changing global climate brings with it all sorts of societal disruptions here and around the world that can impact our national security. Let's just take Pakistan as an example. Not only are millions being displaced from their homes because of the flooding that occurred in Pakistan, but our enemies, especially Al-Qaeda, are stepping into a vacuum that's been created by the lack of action by the Pakistani government and the world community to provide food and medicine and housing, and using that opportunity to further destabilize the government and to attack America and the West. Why should we care? Well, Pakistan government is not very secure, and Pakistan has a nuclear weapon. It does matter to us. It matters to us right here. Our addiction to fossil fuel makes us far too dependent on foreign sources for our oil. It also is increasingly encouraging exploration and drilling in places that are testing and indeed exceeding our technological ability to ensure their safety. You just have to look at what happened with Deepwater Horizon to know their challenges out there. And we need to be very careful as we take them on. We can't be forced by the pressure of their no alternatives and we can't do anything to conserve. 
and our stubborn refusal to launch a massive effort that's required to develop alternative, reliable, affordable, and abundant forms of energy, including nuclear, solar, wind, and biofuels, they're holding us hostage to practice that threaten our environment and economic and societal future because we're not taking the actions that we need to take. This has to change. We need more than ever before to cultivate a broad-based individual commitment to group efforts to address these problems. And that starts with each and every one of us. Unfortunately, however, we seem to have lost the shared commitment that once existed, especially in, in government. It's shocking, but true, or shocking to me anyway, that in the course of the past 20 years, Congress has passed just one piece of major legislation affecting the environment. That was the Brownfields Redevelopment Act of 2001. It's not that our environment stopped needing protection. There's still a lot that needs to be done. It's just the political climate in Washington has not allowed the consensus that afforded us all our early efforts and regulations to protect our environment. In fact, the attacks on the environment and environmental protection have never been greater than they are today in the Congress and across the country in the course of these campaigns. We are being told that we cannot continue to protect our air and our water and our precious land and still see our economy grow. We're being presented with that zero-sum approach. That's simply a false dichotomy. We can and must do both. We've done it in the past, we can do it again. We can protect our air, our water, and our public health and quality of life and still see our economy grow. If we look back 40 years to the early days of the modern environmental movement, we see that Republicans and Democrats came together to pass the laws that America so desperately needed during those years. It wasn't easy. Many Republicans were wary of any kind of regulation, and many Democrats thought you couldn't have enough in the way of protection from the federal government. But recognizing the urgent need for action in this shared area, they came together, they put aside those differences and worked through to a consensus that actually underpins most of what we use today to protect our shared environment. And indeed, the vast majority of those laws were passed by a Congress controlled by Democrats and signed into law by a Republican president. And the votes were very seldom close. Today, Congress seems almost incapable of enacting any environmental laws or any new environmental laws. And this failure is clearly driving the Obama administration's decision to try to accomplish through regulation and on occasion through some very creative and broad readings of existing law, what they can't get done through the Congress. This has not, however, produced the desired results from their perspective. The White House failed effort last year to use the budget reconciliation process to pass climate change legislation was actually a political disaster because that overreach scared away a lot of people who were willing to talk about what we need to do to protect and preserve our environment, willing to talk about the need to control greenhouse gases. In the year and a half since, there's been absolutely no progress on this or in developing a comprehensive energy policy 
the comprehensive energy policy that our country so desperately needs. So how have we arrived at this sorry state of affairs? How did we get to where we are today? There's plenty of blame to go around, but I believe that the main culprit is the political polarization that is driving our country, that infects so much of public policymaking today. We live in a time where debate on every issue, the debate on every issue has become a zero-sum game. Somebody has to lose for somebody to win. The art of political compromise has become very definitely a lost art. Vince Lombardi once said, if winning isn't everything, why do we keep score? Interesting point. That may work in the football field, but it doesn't work in the area of political policy making. We have to stop keeping score and start focusing on forward progress towards shared goals. That's what we need to be all about. Let me give you an example of how this zero-sum game mentality has damaged our ability to come together to make progress. It's something that occurred when I was at the Environmental Protection Agency. And it had to do with our successful effort to reduce the amount of sulfur dioxide produced by non-road vehicles. Now, it may surprise you, because it certainly did me at the time, that non-road vehicles, tractors, and backhoes pose a greater threat to human health and the environment than their on-road cousins, the 18-wheelers and the buses. But there was no pollution standard in place at the time for those off-road engines. So we said, look, we've got to do something about it. And we brought together engine manufacturers and environmental representatives of the environmental community. And we sat them down in a room with our EPA people, and we worked out a regulation that is now in place that reduces the emissions from these non-road vehicles by 90%. When we announced the regulation, the National Resources Defense Council said that this was possibly the best thing done for human health since we'd taken lead out of gasoline some 20 years before. Well, I was, as you can imagine, very pleased. We'd shown that when you sit business and environmentalists down together with government and they work together in good faith, you can come up with a solution to a problem. You can actually get things done. And of course, I was very pleased by the NRDC's statement. It showed that we could even get credit from them. And it showed what can happen when we work together. Uh, well, my euphoria, or satisfaction, shall I say, over that, didn't last very long. And just three days after we had announced the regulation, I opened my Washington Post to find an item that reported that the other environmental groups were, quote unquote, apoplectic of what the NRDC had said, giving us this quote. I mean, they said, if you do this, Carl Rove is going to take it out of context like a uh, producer of a bad Broadway play takes a line out of a review and, and tries to sell it to people. And it would undermine, they were worried that it was, would undermine their ability to attack what they perceived to be um, a less than perfect record as far as they were concerned. And within about three days after that, I got a letter from the NRDC on my desk and it said, basically, please stop using the quote. Uh, we've looked at other parts of the Clean Air Act, and there may be things are better. And, uh, you know, the problem with that was here we were doing something that was right on which we had all agreed, and yet politics stood in the way of even giving a head nod to the right kind of action, to the ability to work together. 
Of course, those who oppose any environmental regulation haven't hesitated to play the zero-sum game either. This was made abundantly clear to me very early on in my tenure at EPA in relation to the issue of climate change. During the 2000 campaign, then-Governor Bush had made a pledge to continue what he had done as governor of Texas and to institute a cap on carbon when he became president. That's one of, as you know, one of the major contributors to global climate change. And so early in the administration, after checking with the White House, I went, reaffirmed that support at the first meeting I attended of the G8 ministers in Trieste. Well, my statement in Trieste was cautiously well received by my counterparts at the G8s, all of G8, all of whom had endorsed the whose countries had endorsed the Kyoto Protocol, because they saw this as a step forward. They were very skeptical about the commitment to the environment of the new administration, so they took this as, as pretty good news. But there were those back in Washington who were apoplectic about it and immediately started putting a great deal of pressure on the White House to basically back away from that. Uh, before I'd even left Italy, they were lobbying the, lobbying the administration to repudiate the statement and to renounce the president's campaign promise. Unfortunately, soon after I landed back home, the White House decided to back off that promise, and uh, that was a blow to my hopes to build a bipartisan approach to environmental policy. And frankly, it also hurt us overseas. I remain convinced that the way we disengaged, not the fact that we disengaged, but the way we did it has uh, hurt us in international relations and still continues to this day to hurt us. We presented the world a face that said, we don't care what you think is important. We only care what we think is important, and we're not going to play. We're not even going to try to play, when that really wasn't even the position of the administration. Many believed, of course, that the results of the 2008 election were going to change things dramatically, that you had a president committed to change an environmental policy with a Congress that was on his side to a degree that we hadn't seen in recent history. Congress was committed to a comprehensive climate change legislation. The president had called for it, and they tried to take immediate action, and most expected some form of legislation to pass. And yet here we are, two years later, and absolutely nothing has happened. Last month, the columnist George Will wrote in the Washington Post a piece entitled The Environmental Movement in Retreat basically pointing out that never before had they had the coming together of as many positive forces and yet accomplished so little. And his prime example was the failure of climate change. Even though the environmentalists had strong policy support on Capitol Hill and in the White House, they accomplished absolutely nothing in this area. Will's question was an important one. His question about are they in retreat? His question was basically, have ever, has ever a political movement made so little of so many advantages? And it's a question worth considering, especially by those who believe we need to see action now. And I would add another question to that. Have the environmental advocates damaged their credibility with the American people? Are people as skeptical of them today as they have long been of those who have opposed any kind of environmental regulation and have blocked efforts to improve and expand our approach to energy? 
In a very real sense, today's environmental advocates are just another big Washington institution where they have high-payed lobbyists, slick campaign ads, uh, they have sophisticated fundraising techniques, and they have access to all the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. And make no mistake about it, they're every bit as professional as their business counterparts. Increasingly, people are seeing this professional environmental advocate as yet another group of players in Washington, and just another group of players in Washington. Average citizens seem to be growing more and more skeptical of the arguments they put forward and taking it with that proverbial grain of salt. And they're more dubious about their tactics in drawing attention to some of these issues. To many observers, today's environmental movement is as much a part of the establishment as any big oil company, agricultural giant, or too-big-to-fail bank. When billionaires are making million-dollar contributions to fight environmental issues on ballots, the average person just shakes their head and walks away from it. They say, I don't have a role to play here. I don't know what to do. The approach they have taken, to my mind, on the issue of climate change is exhibit one of the overreach that we have been seeing and the thing that has undermined their credibility to a great degree. It's a classic classic case of overreach to build public support. It's a kind of combination of Chicken Little and the Little Boy Who Cried Wolf approach to things, which is an interesting combination if you think about it. They predicted imminent environmental Armageddon from global warming. The world was going to end tomorrow. They placed all the blame for warming on human activity. They tried to shut down or belittle dissent, and then they used some clever inside-the-beltway legislative legermane to get their agenda through. But what do they have to show for that approach? Not very much. They haven't achieved a single legislative accomplishment on what they have always said was their biggest issue, that issue of climate change. But what's more important and more troubling is they have helped make the public even more skeptical about the need for action to address some very real problems that we have. I'm convinced that people's confidence in the environmental movement has been undermined by the tactics it's used and by the arguments it's put forward and it's placed their credibility in the same category as those who say we do need to do nothing to protect our natural resources, that nature will take care of any problem we cause if, in fact, we're causing any problem at all through our behavior. Too often, the arguments of the environmental lobbyists have suffered from the perception that they are simplistic, apocalyptic, disingenuous, and anti-prosperity. And in many respects, they have been, if you think about it. Instead of talking about global warming, they should have been talking about global climate change. Instead of blaming human activity for causing climate change, they should have acknowledged that the Earth's climate has been changing for four and a half billion years, but that human activity is contributing in some measure to climate change by exacerbating that natural phenomena. Instead of stifling those with whom they do not agree, they should have welcomed an open and healthy dialogue and discussion about the issue. Get the facts out, acknowledge it's a big issue, and acknowledge that there are skeptics on both sides. 
And instead of employing slick parliamentary tactics in Washington, they should have been willing to take the case to the people and have won the support of the people at large, because that's what we're missing in this discussion. In short, instead of trying to fight, frighten people into action, they should be trying to reason with them. Scare tactics can work up to a point in a democracy such as ours, but at the end of the day, it doesn't work for a political movement over the long term. It's not the way we do things over the long term in this country and how we respond. And it gave those who want to see no further action for protecting the, cli the climate or the environment wonderful openings to go after them because their, their statements were so broad that they opened the door to skeptics. The strategy and tactics of both sides have helped to undermine the broad consensus that we had among the American people for sensible, effective environmental policy. In the USA Today a poll that they conducted back in August, they asked people to rate nine different issues that they were concerned about in this election cycle, and the environment was number nine. A recent CNN poll said that 3% of those who polled named energy and the environment as among the most important issues facing our country today. The fallout of this loss of consensus for policy initiatives is enormous. By driving the environment to the bottom of the policy agenda, it has become far less likely that we will see the sort of sensible, balanced environmental and energy policies that we need to go forward. If this continues, it will have grave consequences for the future, the future of this country. Today's environmental policy and energy policies have never been more closely entwined or aligned. The need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels has never been greater. That's true from an environmental protection point of view and from an energy production perspective. And it's true no matter what your view on climate change. Even if you do not believe that humans are contributing in any way to global climate change, doesn't it just make sense to take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere to help to clean our air, the air we breathe every day? Even if you don't believe that fossil fuels pose any threat to our environment, who would argue that decreasing our reliance on foreign oil isn't a good national security goal? And even if you don't believe that we must find alternatives to fossil fuels, who would argue that developing cleaner, more abundant, more reliable, and more affordable forms of energy isn't a good economic move for our country. Yet when it comes to the pursuit of contemporary environmental and energy policy, we have become very good at saying no to just about any alternative that we can think of. There's always a reason to oppose something. If we want to preserve our economic strength and our way of life, we are going to have to start to learn to say yes. Too many sensible solutions have been unwisely and unprofitably politicized and demonized by both sides of the issues. We don't want to import more, more foreign oil for a whole host of very good reasons, but neither do we want to uh, engage in domestic exploration. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to use coal because it's dirty 
but we don't want to invest the way we need to in new clean coal technology. We like natural gas because we have lots of it, and it's relatively clean, but nobody wants a gas pipeline anywhere near them. I mean, witness the explosion that we saw in California. There are very real concerns there. We want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that come from producing energy, but we don't even want to talk about nuclear power, even though that's the only form of base power that releases no greenhouse gases or other regulated pollutants when it's producing power. Even wind turbines come under attack as being visual pollution, and for those who worry about birds, they don't look the same way when they come out of a windmill as they did going in, and they tend to be in flyways because that's the way the wind blows. Yet while we fiddle, the rest of the world is moving forward. We're not the only ones facing these issues, and there are other countries around the world that are taking advantage of this. There's no better example than China, and in the next lecture series, you're going to hear more about that, I trust. In his last book, which was called Beyond Peace, it was published just after he died in 1994, Richard Nixon wrote that he believed that China could become the world's richest capitalist economy in the next century. In fact, I had in 1990 an opportunity to sit down to him when he, with him on a one-on-one -on -one where he said, China is the next superpower, and we better be nice to her now and engage her now while she needs us, because she's not going to need us very much longer. He went on to quote in his book, Napoleon, who 200 years before that had said, China, there lies a sleeping giant. Let him sleep, because he, when he awakes, he will conquer the world. Now we're a decade into that next century, and it appears that Mr. Nixon and Napoleon were pretty well on the mark. Earlier this year, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, writing from Hong Kong, quoted a leading Chinese official who said, China was asleep during the Industrial Revolution. She was waking during the Information Technology Revolution. She intends to participate fully in the Green Revolution. Now, Friedman went on to admit that he was stunned to learn about the sheer volume of wind, solar, and nuclear, and mass transit, and more efficient coal-burning projects that were underway in China. Here are just two of the facts that blew Friedman away. Over the past year, so many new solar power makers have emerged in China, makers, that the price of solar has fallen from roughly 59 cents a kilowatt hour to 16. China is undertaking the world's most rapid expansion of nuclear power. It's expected to build 50 new reactors by 2020. The rest of the world combined might build 15. China's potential as a new market for a whole host of goods and services remains vast. Its economy continues to grow in double digits. It's, a potential, it's potential as a partner in scientific technological and environmental progress is also huge. There's enormous opportunity in China, and China is going green. Today, China is building more nuclear reactors and clean coal facilities than we are. Tomorrow, we'll take the, China will take the lead in developing the next generation of technology. They're just not satisfied with bringing in our technology, other countries' technologies and letting them build. 
They're watching that technology, they're analyzing it, and they're taking it the next step. Unless we get there first, and China is responding to both the growing global appetite for a cleaner environment and to their citizens' demand for cleaner air and water. We must do the same. The United States must not let itself fall behind in the Green Revolution. There is no need for us to do that. China could leave us in the dust if we fail to meet the challenges that are posed to our own technological and economic ability to succeed. Our potential is enormous as well. We have the brain power to do what we need to do. We need to make the investment in it. Our economic security, our national security, and our standing in the world all depend on us engaging in this way. When it comes to both environmental and energy policy, we are in desperate need of some common sense. It's time we start discussing the issues on their merits, not on what makes the best political argument or the best campaign ad. It's not about politics, it's about policy. That's what we have to be about. There are two things that can bring about this change. One, and I, I hope we never see it, is for a cataclysmic environmental disaster or a massive disruption to our current source of energy. That's what gets our attention in this country. We respond well to disasters. I don't even want to imagine what that would look like, especially since the recent disaster in the Gulf of Mexico did absolutely nothing to heighten the awareness or concern about the environment and environmental protection. The second is for the environmental movement to go back to its roots, the grassroots from which it developed. It wasn't until the average American, regular, everyday people, started to demand an end to the practices that were destroying our environment that we saw our government take action. The enactment of all the environmental laws that have done so much to make our air cleaner, our water purer, and to protect our land better didn't come about because the elites demanded it, because somebody up high said, this is what we need to do. Those laws came about because the people at the grassroots said, enough. No more excuses. It's time to act, and if you don't, we will remember in November. Some of us here remember the late 1960s when our political system was undergoing what I think you'd have to say was perhaps the greatest turmoil since the Civil War. Yet even in the midst of such conflict, we were able to come together <clears throat> to enact far-reaching environmental laws and regulations. That unity of purpose was driven by the grassroots. It crossed party lines, it overcame generational boundaries, and it even bridged the divides of race and class. Everyone came together. The benefits of that effort are being realized today we're still seeing and we're still benefiting from what we did before. As I said before, our air is cleaner, our water is pure, and our land is better protected than it was 40 years ago when the Environmental Protection Agency was established. It's all because people came together and demanded it. The challenges we face today are no less urgent than those of 40 years ago. That's why we need a similar unity of purpose at the grassroots starting today, starting now. The American people need to reclaim the environmental movement. 
from both the professional environmental advocates and for those who make it their life's work to, to oppose any form of environmental regulation or progress. It's clear that without a groundswell of support from the grassroots, the status quo will just continue to go along as it has been. We will continue to be treated to exaggerated claims from both sides that just serve to polarize people more, confuse them completely, and have them turning on their heels saying, I can't deal. We need to appeal to that common sense that we should expect from our elected representatives. Vince Labardi was right. Individual commitment to a group effort that makes a society work is what's going to work in this case. Today, perhaps more than any time in recent history, we need that individual commitment to group goals. We need to work together. The next generation of environmental progress depends on a new generation of environmental activism. Activism driven by the average American committed to the idea that we should leave to our grandchildren and our children and grandchildren a cleaner environment and a more prosperous, healthy country than the one we have today. We should hearken back to the Native Americans saying that we don't inherit the land from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. And we must remember that success can be achieved if we as individuals will commit to a common cause and follow it all the way through. That's how it's happened in the past. That's how it can happen again. And it happens if all of us are willing to get engaged. I want to thank you all very much for having invited me here this evening. And uh, now I'd be happy to answer any questions anyone might have. But thank you very much. Governor Whitman, thank you so much for a very stimulating and thought-provoking uh, lecture this evening. Uh, my name is Kim Roback, and I am the president of the Nebraska Foundation for the Humanities. And I have the pleasure this evening of moderating a discussion with Governor Whitman. Uh, and I also want to thank you for wearing Husker Red tonight, um, knowing your love of football. Uh, and we did actually have a little discussion about football before, uh, before the lecture this evening. If you have any questions that you would like to ask, there are ushers in the aisles who will be walking up and down the aisles, and they're there to collect your questions, and they'll bring them up to the stage. And at the end of the evening, Governor Whitman will be in the lobby, and she is available to sign copies of the book, uh, Written in Water, which is a compilation of essays, including an essay written by Christine Todd Whitman. So she will be available for that, that purpose. Now this afternoon she had the opportunity to meet with a group of students from the University of Nebraska, the Thompson Forum Scholars, and they had a series of questions, and I'm going to start with that while we're compiling questions that you might have of Governor Whitman. So to begin with, um, talk about your view of the future of nuclear energy, and you may know that Nebraska has two uh, nuclear power plants. Uh, and so one of the questions is, what is the future of nuclear energy, and what should we do with nuclear waste? Sure. Well, I have to start with a disclaimer when I answer this question. Mic on? I'm supposed to turn that on? Well, I'll stand back here. I have to start with a disclaimer when I answer this question, because I co-chair something called CASE Energy, the Clean Safe Energy Coalition. And it's funded by the nuclear industry. 
But my co-chair is Dr. Patrick Moore, who was, is a scientist and was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. So he is a very well-respected environmental activist. And both of us were approached to see if we'd be interested in going out and talking to people and starting a grassroots movement with facts about nuclear energy so that the people, people can make their own decision about whether this is the right thing for them, whether they want to see more nuclear power or not. Patrick and I both come at it from the perspective of we know that the, the latest figures, Department of Energy, we're going to see a 28% increase in electricity demand by 2035. That sounds like a long way away, but it's tomorrow as far as utilities are concerned because of the scope of the financial commitment and capital expenditures that have to be made and planning that goes into it. And if we're going to bring more energy on, we're always going to have coal. It's better than 50% of our energy. We'll have oil and gas. We can and must do much better with conservation. But we're also going to need other forms of green power. And while wind and solar are very good, they are still not base power. They're what we call peak shaving. They work when the wind's blowing and when the sun's shining. And we will figure out how to save them and store that energy at some point. But we haven't cracked that nut yet. So we're going to need some base power. Nuclear is 20% of our power mix today, but over 70% of our clean power today in this country. We think we ought to keep it at about 20%. So what we do is we go around to areas where they have nuclear reactors or there's an appetite for nuclear, and we talk to newspapers, we give speeches, we do interviews just to get facts out about nuclear power and where it stands today in the country. If you were to take the president's goals for climate change and the Waxman-Markey bill as it passed the House, you'd have to have 45 new nuclear reactors by 2050. We're not going to see that. We're not going to have that many new reactors built. And uh, I don't know that we want to reach those goals solely on the back of nuclear. But I think we need more nuclear and we need to, to get it out. Now, one of the big questions is that last one, what do you do with the waste? I like to start by describing what the scope of the problem is. There are 104 nuclear reactors in this country. If you took all the waste that we have from those 104 reactors and laid them end to end and together, you'd fill up one football field to the height of the goalposts. So it's not something the size of Maine or New Hampshire most people think of. They're stored safely on site now in underground aquifer holding ponds or above ground reinforced concrete bunkers. But that's not ideal. That's 104 sites around the country. And the Congress has said there should be one, one national repository, and the Congress has said that should be Yucca Mountain in Nevada. CASE doesn't take a position on whether Yucca Mountain's the answer or not, but we do take the position that Congress ought to do something about what they've called for and make a decision. If it's not going to be Yucca Mountain, where else should it go? And we also need to put more money into the research and development going on around reprocessing or recycling the waste. A spent nuclear rod today has between 96 and 97 percent usable energy left in it, fissionable material. France and Japan, France is almost 80 percent nuclear, Japan is rapidly becoming more nuclear, uh, Great Britain's going nuclear, even Germany is. Where they reprocess the, reprocessing that, they reduce it to 2 to 3 percent, so there's a much smaller amount to deal with. So while the issue of what you do with the waste is clearly one that needs to be addressed, it should not be, I don't believe, a showstopper because there's enough going on in reprocessing now. And oh, by the way, as taxpayers, we've spent literally billions of dollars in getting Yucca Mountain ready. Um, depending on what happens Tuesday, maybe with Harry Reid out of the Senate, Yucca Mountain will go forward. You never can tell. There are all sorts of things that happen. You started off by talking about 
um, the safety of, of the country and internationally. And Nebraska sits over an ocean of water. I don't know if you're aware that Nebraska sits over the um, Ogallala Aquifer, which is one of the largest aquifers in the world. Um, one of the questions that was asked is, um, how do we avoid the potential threat of the privatization of water? Because today we fight wars over oil, and many say that in the not-so-distant future we're going to fight wars over water instead, and people are buying up land and, and water rights. And so how do we deal with the issue of, of water um, in, the, in the future? Boy, I wish I had the magic wand answer to that. Because I happen to think water is the number one environmental issue of the 21st century. Um, it is obviously impacted by the issue of climate change. They're interrelated, but I think water is the only environmental issue that I know of that people actually shoot one another over. Uh, we've done it in this country, and we see it happening around the world now, and it is an enormous issue for us. Water rights have always been something that have been enormously contentious, particularly in the West. When you buy property and you buy your water rights and who has those rights, it's something that's got to be dealt with at the state level, at the local and the state level. And the federal government at times is going to have to step in when they're large aquifers, when they are, when the drainage basin is feeding a big area, like, for instance, the actions that need to be taken and have been taken along the Mississippi River Delta, because that Mississippi River provides water for irrigation for a whole host of farms and very fertile areas, and yet there's a lot of pollution, and part, a lot of the dead zone that we see in the Gulf of Mexico comes from the over-fertilization running off and the pesticides that run off in the Mississippi River. So there's a role for all three levels. It's something, though, that is going to be enormously contentious right now. Um, I chair something called the Water Policy Group, and we did a paper uh, about a year ago on the situation in uh, Atlanta, where, as you may remember, about a year ago, Atlanta was, in, was about to go under very severe water restrictions and was in legal battles with the surrounding states. That's something, again, the best we could say to them and work with them on is they've got to go work that way through the courts, but they've got to do it in with the kind of attitude that we're all in this together. We don't make more water. We have got to be more cognizant of how we use our water. We've got to be smarter about brown water and the use we can put to brown water. And we have to educate the public on what living in a watershed means, because we all live in one. Well, as a follow-up to that, you may be also aware that there is the potential pipeline. of a pipeline coming mm -hmm. through Nebraska, an energy pipeline. And uh, the question is, uh, what, what effect will that have on the Ogallala Aquifer and will that endanger Nebraskans? And should, should, it be, um, should it be built? Well, it depends on how it's done. Um, I can't stand here and say it's going to be a problem. At this point, you have to do a very thorough environmental impact statement. I mean, we've got to have power. And at some point, we have to realize that there are going to be trade-offs in power. And it's not always going to be optimum on the kind of energy sources we get. At the same time, there is absolutely no reason to try to shortcut anything. And when you're dealing with something as precious as an aquifer, such as this one, you've got to make very, very sure that every step is taken before the decision is made to go forward to do all the modeling, to take a hard look and make sure that it's going to be safe. And then the very best of technology, if the decision is made to go forward with it, that it's the very best technology with the best oversight. And part of the problem that we have is oversight is not always what it should be. And uh, government agencies have not always done everything they should. I mean, if you believe half of what they wrote about the Mineral Management Service and the way they over did the oversight of the Deepwater Horizon, it was appalling. 
um, the lack of oversight. And that's where government fell down on the job, and you've got to have those things working together. Being an election year, you're seeing a lot of uh, uh, political wrangling going on, and, and uh, you started out, you talked a little bit about the fact that there's plenty of blame to go along. There are a couple of questions here that deal with the whole partisan politics government issue. Um, the first one is an open dialect on energy and the environment possible in a, in a time of sound bites and shock jocks. You can hear a tone there. And the second one is, how do we address the power that fossil fuel industries wield over our legislative officials? So obviously this, this tone of um, a belief that maybe we can't get anything accomplished in Washington or in the states when, um, when there are um, lobbyists involved and when there um, is the partisan bickering that's taking place. Well, there's always part of me that despairs every now and again, but I refuse to allow that to trump everything else. This country, we can overcome this. And as I said to the, uh, at lunch today and to some of the students, when we start asking these kinds of questions about how do we clean this up, what do we do to make sure our politicians are acting in our best interest and not in the caucus's best interest, not in the interest of what's going to get them an extra vote, is look in the mirror. If we don't vote, we get what we deserve. And our, our voter turnout has been abysmal. Until the Obama primaries two years ago, the average voter turnout in this country in a primary was 10%. And even with, in the general election, in the Obama election two years ago, where he made a huge effort to invigorate the 18 to 25-year-old voter, and went to a lot of the campuses and got them all stirred up. While some campuses went out and voted overwhelmingly, this average and that age group still across the country was 17%. In an election year like this, the average voter turnout is usually 34%, and we think we've done a really good job if we get to 51% in the presidential. That's not how a democracy works. And I have used this already today to tell people who get discouraged and say, well, it's not going to make any difference what I do. What can a few of us do to change Congress? They don't pay any attention to anybody. It's all the big lobbyists that control everything because they control all the money. The example I use is the Terry Schiavo case. Now, that was an, an instance where nobody won. There were no winners in that. But the people who felt strongly that Congress needed to intervene to ensure that she was not disconnected from life support were single-minded in communicating that opinion to Washington. I mean, they inundated Capitol Hill with faxes, emails, telephone calls, letters, to the point that you had a bipartisan vote that was pretty overwhelming, with a lot of moderate Democrats voting for that intervention. They acted in four days, and the president cut a vacation short to come back and sign the bill. And the next day, depending on which poll you looked at, they said between 70 and 80% of the American people thought Congress had no business acting. No matter what they thought about the actual case itself, Congress didn't have, the, should not have acted in this case because it wasn't Congress's business. It was a state issue, it had been through the courts, and it was a private matter. It was that combination, it wasn't Congress's. Well, that meant that 20 to 30% of the American people got Congress to act in four days and the president to sign the legislation. What does that tell you? that tells you that everybody else who thought Congress shouldn't have acted was overreaching, probably was, I, I know, I, I knew a lot of them, they were very passionate, 
And they had really big arguments, but they were with their car radios or their television sets, and they didn't vote. So we've got to understand that we are the only ones who can really affect the change. And does big money play a role? Yes. But, you know, ask Ross Perot and Steve Forbes whether big money wins every election. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't keep looking around to say, where's the problem? It's got to belong to somebody else. We've got to start saying to ourselves, it starts with us. And we need to communicate to our elected representatives at all levels, not just when we think they're doing a bad job, but when they think we think they're doing a good job. And it doesn't mean writing every day. It just means taking those issues about which you care that you think are important and letting them know. Because even, and you can attest to this for your political experience, even if the office holder themselves doesn't answer the telephone or read every letter, there's somebody in that office that does and compiles that information and tells them, this is what your constituents care about, this is what they're writing about, this is where they are on this issue may not change their opinion. I happen to know in the Terry Schiavo case is a very clear example where it did. We had two senators from the state of Maine who both normally would have voted against the intervention. One was running for a re-election, and she was overwhelmed with people saying, you've got to vote for this intervention, and she did. The other one didn't vote for the intervention. She voted against it, thought she was dead when she got back to Maine, thought this is going to be it, the end of my career, because I've been always a bit of a maverick, but this would have done it. 72% of the people in Maine thought she'd done the right thing. But she didn't hear it. That's not what she was hearing. That's not what her constituents were telling her if all she paid attention to was the letters and the emails. As as a follow-up to that, what role do you think that individual states should have in in national and international energy or environmental issues? How, How do the states get involved? Well, I'm always, you know, as a former governor, I tend to be a states' rights person. And I don't want the federal government to become uh, the all-imposing arbiter of all standards. But having said that, the scope and breadth of the access to information and scientific evidence that the federal government has, particularly in the environmental area, makes it absolutely appropriate, I think, for for the federal government to set the base standard of what is protective of human health and the environment. Then if a state wants to become more protective, God bless them, let them do it. That's up to them but that the kind of research that can be done at the federal level and the scope of it to do the analysis, whether it's computational toxicology or however they do it, uh, the different looking at the studies, their, their ability to gather studies gives them the ability to be much more accurate in what's protective of human health and, and the environment and safety. And so they should set that base standard. One a question that was asked then is, how can our government be convinced to invest in the green technology research that makes us more competitive with the rest of the world when we're so concerned with our, our growing deficit and, and with the budget as it exists today? And that's going to be a, a real issue because I think what we're going to see after this election cycle is a lot of people who are going to be new to public office who have gotten there because they have run against any spending of any sort. And that, I understand that, I understand that sentiment, and I understand why people are just sick to death of the spending that goes on in Washington and the the seeming complete disregard on both sides of the aisle for a deficit and what it means to us and what paying down that deficit means to us. At the same time, there is always the need for strategic investment that is going to help ensure that we have a strong economic future. And that's where this investment in 
I don't, the president, let me back up, who is a great communicator, as people have said, has done a very bad job, I think, of communicating the new green jobs. He talks about them, but he doesn't really express them well, and he doesn't make people believe that they're actually happening now. But if you look around at the kinds of, look at what's happening with the E15, even though I don't think it's going to be, have the kind of impact that, immediate impact that people think it's gonna have because of the way that it's being proposed, you're talking about recognizing that most of our oil goes for mobile sources and we need to change that. And that's gonna mean more people planting more crops, it's gonna mean more ethanol, mean more biofuels, and those are gonna be good jobs. It's one of the things when we talk about nuclear, we talk about a uh, nuclear reactor employs some five to 700 people, permanent jobs that aren't gonna move anywhere when they're up and they pay about a third more in almost every level than a similar job in the local community. These are jobs that we can now start to develop if we're gonna say we're gonna get into this. And if we do the kind of research and development that we need for these new, new approaches to the environment, it can be pretty exciting. Right now in New Jersey, on our farm, our daughter and son-in-law are building a home. These are young guys that came up with this concept. It's gonna be a lead is, a, the new Green Building Council of America is a standard called Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design that's recognized internationally. And there are a lot of buildings here and in Omaha that are lead buildings. And they say that you're doing a really good job and they have categories as basic lead, silver, gold, and platinum. This will be a lead platinum house. Not with solar, not with wind, not with geothermal, just in the way it is built with the kind of products that are used and the cost is less than what a stick-built house in our part of the world would cost. They are just one little company doing this. There are other companies doing it. There are a lot of exciting ideas. They all tend to be small now because they haven't gotten the investment yet to take them up to the next step. But they're out there, these jobs. And that's gonna be the future. The rest of the world's gonna go beyond us. We're gonna be left behind. We better find our niche fast. There, there are a number of questions that are here that I would love to ask, but I think we have time for one last question. So um, I think this question has been asked of you more than once today. Evidently, there was, the EPA came out with a regulation today that talks about regulating dust. Okay. And, um, and the question is, is, is that such an illegal policy that it ends up stimulating public skepticism and anger toward uh, environmental issues? No, I think probably without question the way it gets reported. I don't really know. I mean, this was new to me today. I just saw a, a Greenwire article on it. There, It's a proposal going after large dust particles, but that's going to capture farmers and ranchers. And I don't know why they're going to do it, because I don't know what you tell a rancher or farmer. Don't drive the tractor when the, you're having a drought. Don't go down the dirt roads. doesn't make much sense. I mean, you can either oil the roads as we do in the east, and you don't want that in your corn crop, or you can use water, which is too precious to spread on the roads to keep the dust down. In fairness to the agency, I understand exactly why they have to take on this issue. And it's more about cities like Las Vegas, where you get the winds coming in and the dust off the desert that cause real problems for human health. Now, what they're gonna do about the winds and the dust in the desert, I don't know. I don't know how you're gonna make the desert wet, but. You know, that's, there are real problems out there with, with particulate matter, both fine particulate matter and with the large dust molecules, but uh, I'm kind of stumped as to where they think they're going to go with this one, and I, I, there are other issues that I would rather they took up than this particular one, because I don't know where, what they're going to possibly suggest people can do. 
Well, I, I appreciate your time with us this evening. We loved having you in Nebraska. One of the questions that was first asked of Governor Whitman when she, when she spoke with people this evening, I think the first question everybody asked is, is this the first time in Nebraska? No. And, no. <laughs> Governor Whitman has been here before. She has been here um, on, on a golfing trip on, huh? on more than at least opening, one occasion. Opening a golf course. Opening a golf Palmer, course. It was great. And, uh, and so we're thrilled to have you back. We are thrilled that you, were sh you shared your evening with us and your comments and your thoughts. Sh Governor Whitman will be here. Uh, signing autographs, and if you would like to buy a book um, and have Governor Whitman sign it, sh the books are available in the orchestra lobby, and she will be there um, uh, and for a while after the lecture. A and before we all leave, I would like to take um, a point of personal privilege. Um, Jane Hood is here someplace in the audience, and Jane is retiring at the end of this year which means that this is the last governor's lecture that Jane will serve as executive director of the Nebraska Humanities Council. Jane has been the executive director of the Council on the Foundation for 23 years, and we all know her as Wonder Woman. Uh, and if you look at the accomplishments that she's made in the humanities, uh, you'll understand. Her tenure was capped off last year um, by hosting the National Humanities Conference where the entire country came to Nebraska and saw firsthand why Nebraska is known as a leader in the humanities. So I would uh, really like to have Jane stand and let you know how much we're going to miss you, but how much we will remember for a long time all the work that you have done. So please help me in thank thanking Jane. Where are you? She's back here. Thank you so much, Jane. On behalf of the University of Nebraska, the Ian Thompson Forum on World Affairs, Union Pacific, the Nebraska Humanities Council and Foundation, we congratulate Don Peterson for his work um, in receiving the SOAR Award. Um, we thank uh, Governor Whitman for being with us tonight. And most of all, we thank all of you for being here and for supporting the humanities. We look forward to seeing you next year in Omaha at the uh, 15th Annual Governor's Lecture. Thank you all. Good night and drive safely. Thanks.